0: What we're trying to point out to people is there's, there's often this tension, profit or purpose, right, and or concessionary and impact investing. And we're trying to say, if you adopt a tri-sector model, these things are synchronous and synergistic. And that's the really interesting thing about it. And then what's really interesting, Karina, is if you can make them synergistic, then this can spread, right? There could be hundreds, thousands tens of thousands of organizations across the world to think this way. And then we can start to have this sort of change that we all want to see at scale happen much, much, much more quickly.
1: Welcome to Care More, Be Better,
0: better, a podcast for
1: people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi, an activist who is passionate about building a better, more sustainable future for all of us. Every week, I invite you to care a little more so that together we can build that better, brighter future. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this show wherever you listen so you're sure to discover new episodes as soon as they drop. Have you ever wondered why we as a country are so committed to endless growth, to methods of business building that are extractive, focused on incremental profits and optimized results, all while whittling down the little guy and capturing more wealth for the top 1%? In order to escape that cycle, we are going to have to do a little work, hard work, to democratize access to things like funding, to normalize some wages, to reduce pay gaps, and a whole lot more. To unravel this story, I am joined today by an amazing individual, Jens Malbach. Jens has a passion for entrepreneurship, innovation, investing, and he seeks to create a world where social and economic progress are available to all people. He's the founder of New Impact, a humanity benefit nonprofit, and that language is something we'll get more into, humanity benefit nonprofit, that seeks to utilize a data-driven tri-sector approach to aligning the resources available in the private, social, and public sectors to generate superior societal and financial outcomes. Jens first learned of potential for tri-sector solutions when he founded Coinstar in 1990, You might have seen their machines in a local grocery store. Now, that company that simultaneously benefited the private, public, and nonprofit sectors. He holds an MBA from Stanford University and a BA from Yale University. Jens, welcome to the show.
0: Good afternoon, Karina. Nice to be here.
1: Well, we've spent a fair amount of time on this podcast in particular talking about the triple bottom line, right? People, profit, and planet and getting them on the same scale, or even going into what it is to be a B Corp. I've even dug into circular economies, donut economies, and building regenerative businesses. But I hadn't heard of this term tri-sector approach before I met you. So why don't we just start there? What is this? What is a tri-sector approach?
0: Uh, well, it's a field that we're pioneering and trying to get named, similar to design thinking or human-centered design. Uh, we think that trisector thinking and importantly tri-sector business models can be phenomenally important for you know driving the sort of progress that we want to see, whether that be on environmental issues or social issues or economic issues. But before I dive in, I just have to say I'm really excited because I love the name of your podcast with <laughs> more better. And when I created New Impact, which is we're at 501c3. I didn't pick a dot org. We're actually a dot care. So we're new impact dot care. Cause I think fundamentally, if we're going to drive the sort of change that we want to see in the world, it comes from people caring I and mean, caring's kind of at the root of everything that kind of drives progress going forward. Well, so I just I- wanted to say that up front cause I love the care piece.
1: <laughs> I love that um, too. And I'll have to tell you, I've often wanted to use a dot life when it comes to supplement companies, because you're building a product for a better life, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and as these terms start to gain more traction, it just enables us to have those shorter URLs. I mean, I one day wanted to do cmbb.com, but that, of course, is going to cost me twenty thousand dollars if yeah, yeah, I want to yeah. capture that.
0: Yeah. So trisectors, um, let me kind of start with the basics about you know how what we mean by this term trisector, and I'll just use an example from my day uh, today because I think we all live in what we call the trisector world, and the economy is broken out into three. You know, basic groups. We have for profit companies, which is about 80% of the economy, uh, at least in the US. And then we have governments, right? The public sector funded by taxes, and that might be city, county, state, you know, local, district, or federal governments. That's all public sector. And then the social sector, we mean the nonprofit world. And a lot of people in the nonprofit world don't want to be about what they're not, not for profit. So there's, you know, they're often now being referred to as social sector entities. So that's kind of the resources that we have. That's the playing field that we have to work in to try to make things happen are, are these three sectors. And we all live in them every day. You know? So for instance, I woke up in my you know, house this morning, which was built by a private sector contractor. I took a shower and I had public sector water, for which I was quite grateful. And then I had uh, clean water, drinkable water. And then I had a cup of coffee, which had been certified fair trade by a nonprofit organization. So I hadn't even left my house and I was already having what I'd say is a, a tri-sector day. And when you step back and think about how we all, you know, move through the world, whether you're on public transportation or a road or using the internet, which was, you know, created by government, which we're on right now, it's really, you know, amazing how we're surrounded by these three sectors in a very integrated way. You know, and yet when we think about building our organizations, we don't use this same lens. And what I've found, I have a deep background in the private sector, is that if you actually start to think about sort of a whole of society approach, You can actually create stronger business models where profit and purpose are not in conflict, and even stronger models in the social sector and the public sector. So that's the basics of tri-sector, right? There's three sectors of the economy, and we are pioneering some different ways to think about how companies in particular can build themselves to get to the place where we all want to get to collectively.
1: As I perused your website, I saw a simple Venn diagram, which I think people could picture in their mind of just having the private, the public, and the social, and then that sweet spot in the middle being really what you're talking about. Yeah. And so I was hoping that you might be able to share with us an example, and perhaps we would dive into what you did with Coinstar as a for example to commence this sure. conversation so people can really visualize it.
0: Yeah. So I think Coinstar is a great example. It's the one that I know the best and it's the company that I started. And let me just put a couple of pieces in place before I describe the, what well, we actually did at Coinstar, because I think the motivation is important. i have been, uh, my parents immigrated from Denmark after World War II. And so I was raised in the family that came to the US that really cared about good government and freedom and democracy. They also cared about what they called the free enterprise system and companies and entrepreneurship. And they had a Nordic sense of progressiveness, and so they cared a lot about the social sector. So that was just kind of in me, and I knew that I wanted to work in all three sectors. This is a, a point of sort of, you know, a personal goal in my life. And when I got career advice after my first job, it was like, hey, you do these things one at a time, you know, work in the company and then volunteer in a nonprofit and then maybe be useful in the public sector. Uh, somehow, and it was very sequential. And I was very motivated to think about could I actually do all three of those things at once? And the language of the day was can you do well and do good at the same time? And that was really the seeds of Coinstar, which came out of this sort of uh, personal desire. So, specifically on, on Coinstar, I was lucky enough to go to uh, Stanford. And the reason I wanted to go to Stanford is not that they have a great MBA program, but they had a public management program. So Stanford was already thinking about the integration of public sector resources and um, private sector resources. And I hope one day they actually do a, a tri-sector degree when they start to integrate this stuff a little bit further with that. And while I was at Stanford, I kind of got bitten by the entrepreneurship of in Silicon Valley. People are always talking about startups and these sort of things. And I never viewed myself as an entrepreneur. I was more of a spreadsheet jockey and a numbers guy, but I'd moved a lot. Well, that helps. Um, and, <laughs> yeah, it does. Um, But I'd moved around the country a lot. And I always had this sort of ever-growing jar of pennies, nickels, dimes, and quarters that I couldn't get rid of. I mean, you used to have to put them in little paper wrappers, you know, write your name and try to deposit them. It was getting harder and harder to get rid of them. And I was thinking, you know, one day in classic entrepreneurship land, you know, how do you turn a problem into an opportunity? So I actually wrote to the Fed and I wrote to the Mint and I did some research. And what I learned was that They'd manufactured about $15 billion worth of physical coin stops to supply the U.S. economy over the past 30 years. So that's the amount of metal that was sitting out there. And then I did a lot of customer research. I hung outside of Bay Area supermarkets. You know, I'm a grad student, you have any coins at home. And what I learned was that about half of that $15 billion, about $7 billion, was actually sitting on dresser tops in mayonnaise jars and piggy banks. So it was actually a terrible product. I mean, half the product they'd made wasn't even being used. But the other half the eight billion actually circulated in the economy and created this 150 billion dollar market that turned over 20 times a year so i'm like wow there's 150 billion dollars worth of coins flowing through the u.s economy or more and there's all this money sitting on dresser tops what about if there was an easy way to have a machine where people put their coins in convert it back into cash so that was the seeds of what i'd say the private sector idea and as i started pushing on it i started thinking Well, boy, we're actually really successful in terms of getting enough units out there and getting all these old coins back into circulation and also speeding up the velocity that, you know, they don't have to ever make another coin because there's so much out there. We can simply reuse and repurpose um, what we already had. And if we could do that, we could save the federal government billions of dollars in terms of reducing manufacturing costs, mining costs, sustainability, shipping, transportation. I'm like... Well, this is kind of a win-win. If the company does well; that's great, but it's also super great for the Fed and the Mint. And then I started thinking about the social sector, and I started thinking about the history of coins. So things like March of Dimes—you know—they hmm. raised a lot of money from dimes, or uh, you know, Salvation Army uh, during the holidays will often have the bell, out, have right? The bell, right. Yeah. right. You know, or UNICEF, my sisters had done the program where they would go do the trick-or-treat for UNICEF program. Instead of collecting candy as a teenager, they'd go around with these orange boxes. I don't know if you remember the program, and people would put coins in. And that was a very successful program for UNICEF. So I was like, oh, you know, we could have these machines that help people kind of convert their loose change and their piggy banks back into useful cash, which would be good for the supermarkets. And the more we do that, the more the money the government will save. And we could also add up a donation feature where people could donate funds hmm. to a charity of their choice, which would be great for the charity when we could do that at a low cost. So I was like, hey, this is really interesting. I could actually create a company that allows me to not only work in the private sector, but be useful in the social sector and be useful to public sector all at the same time. So it was. It was I was young, I was 27, and I was like, I want to go for this. So I spent the next 13 years of my life... Going through all the, you know, stand arounds adventure, venture, and we took the company public and we grew it, you know, and it worked, which was really great. I mean, you can check the boxes on Coinstar as a private sector company, but probably what I'm most proud of is, you know, the work that we did with the Fed and the Mint, and they didn't even know what to do with us. They're like, you're saving us so much money, but how are you doing this? You're just a company. I'm like, we just embedded our work with yours. And then CoinStar has probably raised uh, close to a couple hundred million dollars now for nonprofit organizations. So that's an example. Um, That's
1: incredible. I mean, I have to admit that I do have a jar of coins at home. It's my Martinelli's (laughs) jar for my kids. Like it's a way to collect the coins. And then every once in a while when it's full or when it's near full, we will go to the CoinStar machine at the Safeway. We're at the local bank that there's a local bank that has one here and Fill the machine, walk out with $26 or whatever it ends up being, and then have like an ice cream date with my boys. And at least they're thinking then that the coins that they see aren't just garbage because I mean, heck, we don't use cash that often anymore, but my husband still likes to, you know, buy with cash and comes home with coins and then they end up like in the couch or wherever. And we just, we've turned it into an event. And so I like that you were in the solutions thinking to create something that was a little different. I also think it's interesting that I just completed my degree at Santa Clara University and I took a social benefit entrepreneurship course. And that professor was recruited to go to Stanford. So now he's at Stanford in their business school. And who knows, maybe he'll be part of this tri-sector future.
0: Yeah, which is, I think, you know, I think it's interesting. I think business schools and public policy schools and other parts of universities are, are addressing this problem, but I think they could go further because what we're advocating for with sort of a, a tri sector model in our language is actually, you know, it, things like social entrepreneurship or CSR, or even ESG, can kind of sit outside the core business. But we're really interested, at least on the company side, how can their actual business do good? right? Mm -hmm. Fundamentally and bake in the impact and unite profit and purpose in in the core business model.
1: Okay. And And let's just back up for a second because I try to translate these acronyms for people. CSR is a corporate social responsibility program. Many companies have them. In some cases, it's just like lip service to a specific thing to be something that the HR team can talk about. And ESG is environmental sustainability goals, ESG. So- Just making sure we're all speaking the same language. Yeah,
0: thank you for that. And I think they're important, but I don't think they go far enough in terms of really trying to drive the sort of change that we want to see at scale. So just using, you know, Coinstar as an example, you know, the government had created this $150 billion market, right? We hadn't done that, right? And we as a private sector company could essentially borrow that as a way to reach customers and make them more efficient and those sort of things right so but when we built the model we built in a way that was actually good for government and good for us so you know and the way that worked was really interesting so for instance when we rolled out los angeles with 100 machines which was our biggest rollout ever it was very exciting and i got back to seattle and i had a call from washington dc and it was the fed and they're like, who are you and what are you doing? The West Coast has canceled all future penny orders. You know, come to Washington, D.C. and explain yourself, yeah. which was both like super exciting, but also a little bit of a panic that like this big entity was calling us up. But was what was interesting is, you know, when the Fed understood what we were doing, they're like, oh, my God, this is so interesting. Right. But then they're all, they were also confused. They're like, you're not a customer. We haven't hired you. You know, you're going to make this way more interesting. You know what do we have to do and our answer was you don't have to do anything you've already done your work you already have an existing resource called the coin system we're just repurposing it in a different way that also aligns with your own self-interest and they're like we love this but they were also really helpful to us so the following year i got a call from the royal mint from the bank of england uk who said hey we were just talking to the fed in the us you're saving us government all this money Will you come do the same thing for us sounds like a good opportunity so I flew over and they were very excited and they literally asked us on the first trip, what do you need to you know, bring this service to the UK? And I like, well, we need to talk to the supermarkets and a bunch of the people. They set up all the meetings that week and we rolled out a thousand machines in six months. And I like to say that my private sector shareholders would never have gotten that benefit if Coinstar hadn't embedded a public sector benefit into the core business model. It was really fundamental. So there was a way where these things can be synergistic, right? And if we can think about how we work together with this sort of whole society approach, I think we get a lot further. And the same thing, just to cover the social sector, I think it was a year after that, I got a call from UNICEF at the UN and we had maybe six or 7,000 machines out in the US. And they're like, hey, we have this trick or treat for UNICEF program where kids go off and collect money and they send us, you know, hundred thousand of these little orange cardboard boxes every year. And I'm like, I know my sisters used to do it. And they said, you know, we love the program, but it has two problems. The first problem is half the kids never send us the money. And it's not <laughs> because they're bad kids. They just, they just don't get around to sending the money yet. But they said, the other problem is the other half the kids actually do send us the money. and We have to pay someone to open up, you know, 50,000 orange boxes, dump out the coins, count them, get them in the bank account. So we said, listen, we're mission built for you. Instead of doing that, just put a message on the back of those orange boxes that says, hey, kids, take this little box down with the local Coinstar machine, punch in a four-digit code. And what we would do is we would cut our fee in half, and we would wire transfer, at that point, 96% of the funds directly to UNICEF, just right into their bank account, save them a ton of money. And it was great for them. The right? they logistics. Got much All the logistics. was. I mean, right. they, they were essentially using our private sector resource to make their, you know, longstanding social sector program work. So if you kind of just use that example, we think about, you know, a business model or tri-sector models where each sector, governments, nonprofits, and companies each contribute something to the model and each get a benefit so that they all want to play and, and play together. So that's where it started, right? And now it's kind of gotten a lot bigger from there, but that's the core of where I first started thinking about tri-sector solutions.
1: So, another example might even come from the world of recycling, right? Like, uh, I'm thinking about some of the systems that exist in Germany in particular, and less so here in the United States, where they'll actually have. That bottle of the old style fashion glass bottle of Coke would get refilled numerous times. And we've essentially walked away from some of these methods of procuring and using things like the beverages that we might consume. We've gone to this kind of plastic and wasteful world for the most part. And now we're starting to see some resurgence Along these lines where companies are starting to say, look, you know, you buy the glass bottle, you redeem it each time you bring it back and we'll give you your credit back, essentially. Yeah, no, it's great. We're starting to see more of that. But I mean, in my humble opinion, it's happening far too slow. And so what might you say that we could do to accelerate this process of getting to a space where people are thinking more innovatively about how to make solutions that do bring into Central Frame this kind of trifecta?
0: Well, I love the recycling example from Jeremy, And let's take that and let's zoom way out, right? And let's think about not just the milk bottles or the the soda bottles that are out there in glass, but let's think about all the resources in the world. Let's think about everything that's ever been built by a company, a nonprofit, every road, every database, every truck that's out there. And based upon sort of our best research, we think there's about $500 trillion of value on the world's balance sheet. Instead of building a bunch of new stuff, what we're wondering is can we essentially recycle or in our language, repurpose what we already have and if it was built for purpose A, could it also be used for C, D, and E, right? And If we can actually be smarter and wiser about how we use what we already have and repurpose them and just recombine them in different ways, then we can, I think, have a much, much more sustainable economy. So that's a big jump from going from the milk bottles to sort of you know global repurposing or recycling piece. But I think in terms of your question about what people can do, I think the first thing to do is to really adopt this mindset. And it's hard to get people to think differently. So if you are an individual and let's say you're working for a company this also works for nonprofits and governments let's just stay with companies because they're 80 of the of the balance sheet of the world out there you can start to think about what does your company do and can your company actually start to adopt a tri-sector model so we do a lot of advising to companies little ones medium-sized ones and big ones it's interesting the small ones tend to be a little more innovative and faster moving but I'll ask them three core questions. I mean, if you're a company, I'll say, hey, you know, what's your private sector strategy? And, and they'll have good answers, right? They'll go, well, we're building this product, we're doing these ways. But then I'll ask them, what's your social sector strategy? How are you working with either local or national nonprofit organizations in a way that is mission aligned with what they're trying to do? Often, social sector organizations have really interesting resources that could be useful for the business, like Coinstar and UNICEF. And there are often really useful resources that the business has that could be really useful to the social sector. So if you're thinking about your company, ask yourself what a social sector strategy is that serves the mission of the social sector and also serves the mission of what your company's trying to do. Most people get that question. And then I say after your private sector, you know, what's your private sector strategy and what's your social sector strategy? I'll ask, what's your public sector strategy and how do you work with governments? And often people in the private sector recoil. They're like, you know, why would I wanna work with government? They're gonna slow me down, they're gonna regulate me, they're gonna tax me, they're gonna get in my way. And I'm like, you're thinking about this wrong. Governments are vast sources of amazing resources and they're really, really important in society. And if you can think about a strategy for your business that actually works in conjunction, not in a public-private partnership way, but in sort of this resource leveraging way that is, and you can do something in your company that's good for government, like Coinstar did with the Fed and the Mint. And they can also do something that's good for you. You can really accelerate these things. So individually, I'd say for your listeners who are working in companies, I'd start them to encourage them to start to adopt a tri-sector mindset. So this private, social, and public sector strategies. Now, more specifically at New Impact, we're not only trying to advocate for this approach, but we're starting to build innovation tools because we're all about innovation and impact at scale. So we have some very sort of easy introductory tools that people can find on the website. We're building a a tri-sector innovation business model canvas and dashboards. Some of them are PDFs. There's a new one coming out in Miro, which will be interactive here later this month. And so people can start to play and explore with these sort of innovation tools But as we've been leaning into the work, what we're realizing as a a nonprofit is that there is a that as a world, we actually need to think about our resources really differently. And it's super hard to find the resources that I'm talking about easily. You can't just do a Google search and say, you know, who's on the team for housing or who's on the team for clean water and think about resources and stuff. So, we're starting to advocate for a, um, an open data, open impact innovation knowledge commons that we're calling commonsource.care, which we're calling it a knowledge commons for common good. We can't build it, that's not within our, our zone, but we're really interested in finding technologists uh, who want to help drive scale at change. I mean, Wikipedia is a great example, Linux is a great example, but we think there actually need to be new connection tools that let us as consumers and innovators connect to the resources and the companies that are doing stuff. So we're starting to do some, there's some practical data tools that people can use. And then for some of your listeners who might have some of those skill sets, we're really interested because we just think that more, there just needs to be more connective tissue in the world so we can be smarter about how we're uh, using our resources. And then the last thing we do is we do some advisory work. We're starting to work with universities, with accelerators and incubators and trying to bring this these trisector mindsets. So if anybody is working in early stage innovation or impact or is thinking about that, occasionally we can help directly. We're not a consulting company, but we we sometimes act like some like one in, in in very specific cases. Like we I did work years ago with this company in New York called Propel, which is completely revamping the food stamp system in the US. It's a really extraordinary story. And they were able to create a trisector model on top of the Department of Agriculture uh, supplemental nutrition assistance program or snap. And there's lots of stories like that on the website that people can read and get inspiration as well.
1: I want to thank you first for that in-depth explanation. You mentioned a couple of things I want to go back to. One is the business model canvas or BMC that your company is essentially creating to help people kind of put their one page business plan into effect that could take these three things into consideration. Is that something that they can find directly and easily on your website today?
0: Yeah, so they can go to newimpact.care. We're evolving these tools right now rather than creating them from scratch. What we want to take this is actually an, an expansion of like a lean startup canvas, which is taught at Stanford and other places, or the strategizer business model canvas a lot of people are familiar with. And we want to add a tri-sector lens to it to get people thinking this way. And we're, as I mentioned, we're starting to build these interactive tools. And I think we're close to having the first interactive for people who know what Miro is, a board that people can actually put stuff in and, and, and track these sort of things and starting to experiment for their own organizations.
1: Well, that's very cool. And I will just say, you know, having used that uh, business model canvas, the BMC, as put forth in many business plans or many business schooling programs, too, I mean, I just found it to be a really... Easy way to get your thoughts in a one kind of dashboard where you're like, okay, I'm I'm considering all of the pieces of the pie. I see where I'm weak. I see where I need support. I see where I may need the skills of a co-founder to really hone in on this particular spot. And so I just I love that exercise. And it makes a lot of sense to me that you're you're kind of expanding on these existing resources that may be fairly well known. Well, we're
0: repurposing what's there and trying to add a little bit bit more to it. And I think that's interesting, Karina, that the process you described for yourself, you know, it's really powerful and a lot of people have gone through it. And what we're suggesting is if you can add a few more questions about other sectors and other resources in there. You can actually not only embed impact more directly into your company, but actually make a stronger company. These don't have to be profit and purpose do not have to be in conflict, right? There actually is a way to harness them, which is what we're proposing for people to think about.
1: Well, and this is the wave of the future, what we hear from especially millennial employees. I mean, they are considering your profit, your purpose, your passion, all things in one as being really the companies they want to work for, they want to spend their time at. And I mean, that's not unique to that generation. It's across generations. It's definitely what has driven me to stay within the natural products industry for the entirety of my career, because I feel like I can make a difference in helping people have the best health possible by giving them access to great nutrition and good information. And honestly, you know, even in defining what I was doing with this podcast, I used a BMC model to try and figure it out, you know, like, what is my brand? What is my mission? What is my purpose? How is it going to align? How am I going to fund it? How much money am I willing to personally invest in this thing, whether or not it's actually paying for itself? And so asking all of those questions on day one enabled me to have a much clearer vision of where I was going to take the show. And I personally think that those tools can even be used if you're trying to divine what your personal purpose is in the world. Like you don't have to have a business in order to use that sort of tool. You can use it to align what your where your values are and what you want your life to look like even within the walls of your home. So love that. Yeah. Yeah. And I
0: 100% agree with you that if you're a company and you want to recruit, especially younger employees, this is no longer optional because I think it's becoming self-evident that we need to upgrade our systems if we're going to have a future that we actually like. And we got to get there faster. And I feel a, a real sense of urgency that we're not solving problems at scale fast enough. We have done work with foundations, so we've looked at issues around food insecurity, uh, homelessness. We've looked at the COVID rental relief funds. We just looked at a rotation, you know, for people coming out of the military. Apprenticeships are super interesting. And what all of those issues have in common is that no one sector can solve them on their own. And I think my concern is sometimes we take this sort of isolated siloed approach, right? Sometimes I'll talk to people in the federal government and they're working on an issue, and the big idea is, hey, we'll get two different departments within the federal government to work together, which turns out is really hard, right? That's a good thing, but you know, I'll, I'll often say to them, hey, you know, let's say you get these two, you know, groups of the federal government. Let's say the Department of Labor, or Department of Ed, working together. That's great, but you know, that's not how people live their lives. They might be interacting with state-level entities or their city or their school district, right? And oh, by the way, they're also going to be interacting with, with companies and nonprofits too. And unless you take a human-centered approach to solutions with a tri-sector mindset, you're really unlikely to get to a solution that really works for people. So that's part of this mindset shift of trying to get you know innovators in the world to think differently and recognizing that we're all in this thing together, right? Classic comment, but we're especially in it across the sectors and we get so siloed and even point fingers at the other sectors, it's super hard to work together sometimes.
1: Well, I want to also bring up uh, another example that I thought of just given that I'm in California here and there were incentives to do things like install solar in your home. And even when we went to install an electric car charger, there was an incentive from PG&E to actually encourage that. So they would give us a $500 credit towards our bill just by installing a charge point. Or the fact that we now have these almost democratized access points where you can go and charge your vehicle while you're shopping at a grocery store. And so there are these examples where even in this newer technology space of electric vehicles where there are companies that are thinking about the the social benefit, the private benefit and the public benefit all in one. And just trying to get people to think, open their minds a little bit, because as you look at examples, as you go to your website, newimpact.care, thats simple, just www.newimpact.care, and you look at examples, it can get you thinking more creatively. And if you start to look for these things, then suddenly your mind will open up and you'll be yeah. more likely to see the power of connection and ways that you can innovate your business to actually produce greater results for you improve profits even, create different revenue streams that you might not have seen before, just because you've opened your mind to a new possibility.
0: Yeah. And I I mean, I love this stuff, obviously. So, you know, what's fun for me too, when I talk to early stage innovators and entrepreneurs, they often face this question of what do I make? What do I buy? What do I build? And what they don't think so much about is what can I borrow from government? Or what can I borrow from a nonprofit organization and the same thing for the other entities coming back and forth you can't just borrow it you know and not honor their self-interest you have to do something that's actually good for them but when people kind of open up their headset to thinking more holistically it is shocking how many resources are out there i'll tell you like you know government is a tremendous resource of data government collects all this information it's just often just sitting around, right? So you can, you know, harness. I mean, the, I mean, Zillow as a company is built on is built on the real estate property databases, which is you know collected by our tax dollars, which is pretty interesting. But just coming back to your comment about the subsidies or the incentives with utilities, it's a great example, Karina, because if you think about if you're a power utility or a water utility, you know, it's really expensive to build a new power plant, and not so great for climate, right? And if you can get people to upgrade their, you know, washer or dryer or refrigerator or car to something that's more sustainable, right? Then they can actually save money, right? And they're aligning their interests about how do I get, you know, good power out to people without having to spend, you know, some huge amount of money for an, a whole new plant, which which we don't want, and also get a better outcome, right? So that's just sort of this thinking through about, you know, what are the resources out there we can repurpose and how we put them together in interesting ways, But importantly, make it work for everybody. And it's okay to talk about the self-interest of government, not on the political side so much, but on the operational side and the self-interest of nonprofits. Because I think if you can get that piece figured out, then these these models really work well and scale quite quickly and are self-sustaining.
1: Well, that's really great. I do want to pivot to talking about something that relates to funding companies. You know, in a few prior episodes, I've included in including my connection with Talia Antonetta, Antonia, I should say. She has a podcast called the Social Impact Startup Podcast. And also my interview with Sarah Dusak, who's a founder of Enigma Ventures. We talked about the fact that women-led companies still get far less in the way of VC money. And in fact, 2021 was a trend downward. During the pandemic, women founded and run organizations have seen less VC funds than they did in 2019 so we're down to around 2% again, which is kind of disappointing. So I wondered what your thoughts were about specifically funding organizations. And from what I'm seeing, at least, there seems to be more interest in building social impact into the strategy for women-led companies, just generally speaking. So I'm curious how you see this, how we can push that change forward, and and what your perspective is.
0: Well... Money's a funny thing because it tends to follow deals, which and there's a bunch of barriers that get blocked in terms of who sees what deals um, when. I think if I was a a female entrepreneur or really any entrepreneur, I would lean heavily into this approach because I think it's fundamentally a smarter way to build the business with impact and growth and profit. And I think that for if people can be leading with new approaches, at some point, you know, the venture capital community, and I don't I don't have a, a lot of insight into the venture capital community, they have to start paying attention to simply better things. The the bias that's there has been well documented. Why it hasn't changed, I don't know. But I think that if we can get more examples out there, they're simply going to have to provide more equitable funding, not only for you know, female entrepreneurs, but also BIPOC entrepreneurs. I mean, there's lots of barriers throughout the system and, and access sorry, to capital and, is um, one of them.
1: You broke up just a little bit there. Can you back up about a sentence and start over?
0: Sure. I don't know where I stopped.
1: <laughs> okay. Just talking about how the system has to catch up for women and then also BIPOC, because yeah. it broke up right in there.
0: Yeah. So I think, you know, the capital system has some, you know, overhang from many years and it needs to catch up with sort of modern innovation and modern entrepreneurship for not only female-based founders but also uh, BIPOC founders. And there needs to be more equitable access and uh, democratized access to capital of all sorts. You know, one of the ways to do that, I think, is to simply show up with more innovative deals that will be uh, more interesting. We think the tri-sector models can be part of that. I would love for a, if there's a female founder you know, accelerator or BIPOC accelerator incubator, for them to adopt tri-sector approaches and just use that as a way to say, hey, these things are actually better, faster, you know, stronger. I'll give you one, one example I mentioned before with this company in New York called Propel. They're literally revolutionizing the food stamp program. And they were doing, I won't give you the whole story, you can read about it, but what's interesting is they now have capital from top flight venture companies, Andreessen Horowitz, Kleiner Perkins, I mean, some of the brand names. And had you asked me five years ago, would a Silicon Valley venture capitalist, you know, back a startup working with a old federal social safety net program, you know, the answer is no. But because Propel was able to do something that was so compelling and so useful to low income Americans, they simply couldn't ignore it. And now their eyes have been, you know, opened up to like, oh, my God, there are really powerful opportunities um, out here. So capital does change. Some of it changes quickly, some of it changes slowly.
1: Well, that's just great. Um, this information has just been so valuable thus far. I, as we deepen our conversation today, I want to ensure that everyone has a chance to get more acquainted with your work. I'm going to mention your website again. Go to www.newimpact.care to learn more about what Yen Smolbach and his team are doing. And you can also follow their work on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. I'll be sure to include links to all of these and everything we discussed today with show notes. Now I have another example that came up for me this week. I work in the algae space and I've been connected to this woman for some time. Her name is Alexia Akbe. She's the founder of Symbrosia. And this is a company that is looking to feed algae to cows to reduce their methane production, right? And they have just been funded in a 7 million round series A, led by Danone Manifesto Ventures. So if we think about this, Danone, the French company, they make yogurt products, right? right? So they have a lot invested in cows. And so they're kind of building this strategic partnership with someone who's actually going to reduce their methane production, which helps them then meet their goals for carbon sequestration or greenhouse gas issues, right? And also is creating a more healthy meat and dairy product as an end result. So to me, this this fits the social benefit. It fits the public benefit. I'm not exactly sure how government will be involved in that, but granted, they tend to regulate things, right? But the overall social and private benefit for sure. And so I'm curious to know what you think about this, this sort of model.
0: Well, I mean, I, I love these sort of questions. I don't know much about the company, so I'm just shooting from the hip here, but I promise you there are many government entities that are thinking about cows and farms and runoff and ways to reduce that impact, who'd be quite interested in this technology in this shift and may have existing programs, existing resources, or or even existing dollars that could be helpful for that sort of transformation. So I don't know, I'm just making this up, but Mm -hmm. I bet if you were to go look around the Department of Ag, which, oh, by the way, is one of the reasons we want a public access database. So someone could just type these things in and find it. But I'm sure the EPA would have a lot of interest in methane emissions. And there may in fact be programs that are aligned there. I'm sure the UN and they could the be World part Bank. of this
1: too. I'm not sure, Absolutely. but I just see what the public eye sees, right? Yeah. In this case. I'll be inviting her on a future episode of the show. So and, I just and saw and this I would you this week, you know. Yeah,
0: that's awesome. But I'd also ask her about the social sector organizations, because there could be in fact be a real health benefit to a variety of people in terms of eating higher quality meat, or there could be other social sector organizations that have thought a lot about, you know, climate change or methane emissions who could in fact be supportive. And one of the things that I'm so intrigued by is there, you know, we have this vast abundance of resources that we don't even know exist. We're just not connected. We don't have enough connective tissue in the world to be able to link these things up. But I promise you, if she were to start digging or the company start digging, she is going to find useful resources in the social sector and the government sector beyond what she's already found that could make the company stronger and accelerate. That's what we love about this work.
1: Yeah, well, I just love it. So I'm thinking about the whole picture here. And I'd like to better understand, if we can, how companies utilize this tri-sector innovation to unite profit and purpose a little bit more. Can you get very explicit on that, very clear?
0: Yes. It's, um, they're not separable. They're actually in the core model itself. They're not like two things that you have to force together. So just coming back to the Coinstar example, the more successful Coinstar was, the more people it reached, the more people it helped convert their coins back into cash, the more supermarkets, the more distribution points. That was great for Coinstar. At the same time, the very fact that we were getting larger and we did more and more recycling, that was good for the government, right? We weren't charging the government. We weren't asking a fee for it. We were simply, we designed the model in a way that was, they win and we win at the same time, right? That's this embedded nature of it. I I used to joke that uh, Coinstar's ticker symbol when we were traded on the NASDAQ was CSTR, so we literally embedded CSR into the DNA of the company, and that's really, you know, this question about how do you do it. That becomes this real question of business model design about getting very explicit about what resources you're going to use and how are you going to hook them up and make sure that there's a benefit that serves both people at the table. There's another company we've done some work with in, in New Jersey called MocaFi, which is looking at credit lending into BIPOC communities in urban settings where they're often stuck with payday lenders. And they're using the Section 8 housing database, right, to essentially enhance credit scores. I can kind of go into that. But it's a situation where the more successful they are with using this data in terms of improving the sort of the financial outcome. Of the people who are using um, the MochaFi lending product as opposed to the payday lending product, then that's actually better for the housing system too. Hmm. So what we're trying to point out to people is there's there's often this tension, profit or purpose, right? And or concessionary and impact investing. And we're trying to say if you adopt a tri-sector model, these things are synchronous and synergistic. And that's the really interesting thing about it. And then what's really interesting, Karina, is if you can make them synergistic, then this can spread, right? There could be hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of organizations across the world that think this way. And then we can start to have this sort of change that we all want to see at scale happen much, much, much more quickly. But it starts with the mindset shift and harnessing that self-interest of the existing resources.
1: Well, I love it. Now, we've talked a bit about some of the applications i want to go to this question of how tri-sector innovation can be used to address challenges in areas such as homelessness affordable housing and food insecurity which you alluded alluded to a little bit earlier but how do you see this coming together with rising homelessness issues with rising costs of living in many cities around the country i mean i know I could have doubled my rent on my tenants over the course of the last five years and have chosen not to. But just because market demand is such in our local area, you could essentially do that. So, what do you see this tri sector innovation really doing to contribute in those arenas?
0: Yeah, well, I'll start big and then go very specific. So, these are all huge challenges, right? That we have not solved as a society. And it's, you know, it's embarrassing to me as a resident and citizen that we're still struggling with some of these things or a lot of these things, and in some cases getting dramatically worse. So we cannot expect any one sector on its own to solve this. Government can't solve homelessness or food insecurity. Neither can the private sector, neither can the social sector. So by definition, we need to bring sort of the full the full array of all of our resources as a society to bear. And if we don't, you know, shame on us. So the question is, how do you do that, right? And we think obviously a lot of the stuff is as a trisector example. So let me be really specific. Last year we received a grant, as I mentioned, we're a C3 from the Morgridge Family Foundation uh, based in Denver. And they've been doing work around food insecurity with a local food bank called Metro Caring. And they'd also been doing, who'd been doing some research on different approaches to food insecurity and, and the food system, which is a long conversation, which we can get into. But there had been some work, um, pioneering work done on the concept of potentially using a public utility model for food insecurity. So they called us up and they said, hey, you think about innovation and government in these different sectors, would you please take a look at what role a utility might be? be used for food? I mean, we use utilities for water, we use utilities for power. Utilities in the 30s were really an important way to democratize and create equal access to, you know, clean water and power, you know, throughout other countries. So could we do that in a modern sense? So we went through a really interesting analysis about food insecurity, and we actually have created a prototype model for a public utility called the Denver County Community Food Utility that actually thinks about ways to deliver food in a way that, you know, deals with hunger and a bunch of other issues that are out there and also pays for itself. Uh, We have extensive information on the website. That's an entire podcast on its own to go into the depth on it. But that's a case where we're able to take a look at, and this is blue sky thinking, and there's a lot of stuff to be tested on it. And we have a concept we call universal basic food, and we have something called the community data commons, which we think changes data and whatnot. But it's been really interesting to apply sort of this tri-sector lens to an issue like food insecurity. You know, on homelessness, we've done a very early stage project three years ago with the University of Washington and big issue in Seattle, which is my home a town has been homelessness. And we asked the students to do a couple of things. It was a, we said, well, gee, who's on the team for homelessness? Who actually has resources that might be helpful to homeless people? And they created a map, and we're putting this in a public wiki called the New Impact Wiki. And we were all so surprised to see how many organizations were working on homelessness. It wasn't just the city of Seattle, or the county, but there were hundreds of nonprofits and companies and government entities And no one had a view of the whole network or the ecosystem about homeless resources, and they weren't coordinated. So we were our first thing was, gee, there's a lot of stuff going happening here. So maybe if we can just put all of our resources on the table and coordinate a little bit better, that would be helpful. So that was kind of one step mapping of resources, which I think is very, very important for homelessness. The second thing we did was as we started to develop a tool, which we call an impact journey, which is a little bit like human centered design or an empathy journey and design thinking, but it's done with a tri-sector lens. And we we interviewed around 40 experts in homelessness and heard, you know, many, many heartbreaking stories, but we created a, a journey from someone who is stable to someone who actually enters homelessness. And we walked through all the different points about what can happen and either they move towards homelessness or not. And then we mapped out the players, the companies, the nonprofits and the governments who could be useful at those points in time to create roadmaps to intervene. And it was so interesting because all these different players, you know, showed up over time. And, you know, for instance, in Seattle, the city of Seattle used to have a three week pay or vacate notice. So if someone was going to be evicted, they get a note on the door after three weeks that says you got three days to get out or stay. That manufactures homelessness. And so we spent a lot of time thinking about, are there different mechanisms could, that could be used at that point in time? And we started to actually think about an insurance model, a rental insurance model, for, to keep destabilized people in that, which I think is a really interesting piece. We also looked very you know, carefully at vehicle homelessness, and around half the people in Seattle live in their cars. And it was a really interesting thing the grad students found, which is that if they live in their car or RV, uh, they probably have an expired license tab. And the policy at that time was if you are in your vehicle and you have an expired license tab, you can't get towed. But if you leave your vehicle, you can get towed. So if you're homeless and living in your car, if you want to go apply for a job or get some sort of support or take a shower, you literally risk everything because your car might get towed because it's got the wrong tab on it. Well, that's a policy problem as, as a resource, right? So homelessness or food insecurity, any of these things, super complex. But if you can break the system down and find some very different points where, hey, the city can change this, or you know, a company can change that, or a nonprofit might have issues here, all of a sudden what's a complex problem might be able to get solved in, in small but important bits. But the most powerful piece about it is viewing the entire problem through this sort of tri-sector piece in this whole society approach. That was a long-winded answer, and you can tell I care about this stuff. But I really think that tri-sector solutions are not only amazing for companies, but could be fundamental to driving social sector problems, driving progress on economic problems, many of which you've mentioned on the podcast already, and importantly, climate-related problems. We do not organize the world's resources around climate to make it easy to figure out who's on the team for clean water or clean air. We all are. But we need to get down to the real practical steps about who can do what, where, when, and how, and how do we leverage what we already have.
1: Well, I have to tell you, it is sometimes challenging to even figure out in your local community who you need to contact for these things. So I completely agree. Like I had decided I wanted to spearhead composting as my issue in my local community. And I was frustrated by the fact that we had these green waste bins and supposedly the systems by which to compost or to support composting, but no real program for it. So everybody just throws their food trash in the trash bin if they aren't into home composting. So I kept at it with my local community and emailing council members and things along those lines just to try and put that conversation forward into another space. And they ended up actually implementing a composting program this February. So I can't claim that I'm the sole person that drove that. I think it came from many people. But by continuing to kind of put forth my thoughts, at least to my local community, hopefully that had an impact. I have to trust that it did in some way. But I
0: I love the story. And let me just jump in on this because, you know, we're in the 21st century. And, you know, there's an expression Andrew Yang uses that oil is the uh, data is the oil of the 21st century. And we used to have you know, things like the law of the commons was about land, and I think so much of our solutions can be around more thoughtful use of data and technology. But right now, you know, data and technology have been, you know, as people, we've been turned into the products as opposed to the customers. But every now and then I think like, you know, wow, if I could have 100 super smart you know, Google or Facebook engineers working on issues of impact and creating technology tools for humanity, right that actually can help us drive the forward we would make so much more progress and faster and i just put a call out to you know to your community that we need to find what i believe are public good technological resources so that you can find out who's doing composting in your city and what you learn can be used by 20 other cities and so we can have this radiation we have the we have the technological skills as a society to do this stuff it's actually not that hard but we don't yet have sort of the will to create the connected tissue so we can get smarter and use what we have. Um, Hmm. And that includes our existing knowledge.
1: Yeah. Well, this is reminding me of a conversation I had with someone I interviewed roughly a year ago. That's David Johnson. He's a professor of law and design thinking at Stanford Hmm. University. And he is developing a technique that can kind of borrow from design thinking some elements of social activism. And so I'm curious to know when he finally gets ready to release that book. I think it was going to be called Climate Activism by Design or something along those lines as a working title. But it really was meant to be a model by which to kind of apply it to some of these broader things so that people working and networked cells could essentially create change. And I do believe that's something that we need, but I'm not sure what it looks like either. (laughs)
0: Well, we have, you know, it's interesting because design thinking, and I I love design thinking. In fact, I, you know, when I built Coinstar, I hired hired David Kelly Design Studios to build the first Coinstar machine. So I feel lucky to have uh, been able to work with that group, which is now called IDEO. But design thinking was really designed for products and services, right? And what we need, what I think we need as a society is actually thinking about organizations and we need to update our design thinking skills and human-centered design thinking skills and what I would say tri-sector thinking skills around how do we actually build our companies? How do we build our governments? How do we build our, our social sector entities? And we need this sort of mindset shift. But in addition to the mindset shift, we need information, right, so that we can get connective tissue. So it's not enough to get people thinking this way. We actually have to build practical, pragmatic, like tools and specifics so that you know what you're doing in your hometown someone else can learn from somewhere else quickly and easily and that can relate into activism too But the question is, what are you being active about, right? What are the brass tacks that actually comes down to? And that's the sort of information we need to flow.
1: And maybe Um, it comes down to funding. Like maybe there are grant prizes that are government funded for creating solutions that do these three things. I mean, there could be any number of programs put together that are supported by the government that get us thinking about how to build a different version of capitalism That isn't just purely extractive, because I think that's where we've had our major failing. And it's not to say that capitalism is completely broken. It's just that it tends to promote kind of extraction, whittling of costs, maximizing profits, not considering the planet as a stakeholder. And when we do that, then we're essentially building businesses that, you know, they might make us a buck today. They might make us a lot of money today. But where are we going to be in 10 years?
0: And to be clear, I'm a capitalist, right? I, mm-hmm. I I believe in capitalism. And yet it's only gotten us so far. Just go back to your food example. One in seven people in, in the US is food insecure, right? That is a market failure that needs to get addressed. So We can keep running with capitalism and we'll keep getting the results that we have, which on one hand are pretty amazing. I mean, globally, it's lifted so many people out of poverty and improved health. And so there's many, many things to celebrate about capitalism. Mm -hmm. And yet it needs to keep evolving because it's not good enough yet. And we got to keep advancing the thinking on it and the practical implementation to make it serve people. Right. So that we as people are actually getting to create the sort of future we want. You know, I'll give a shout out here to the UN Global Goals. I don't know if you track the global goals mm-hmm. or have that. Does your community know what the global goals are or have they seen? Well,
1: it's them? always good to summarize because we get okay. new listeners all the time. <laughs>
0: okay. So the UN created something called the Sustainable Development Goals or mm-hmm. shorthand the SDGs. And That's there's right. 17 of them, you know, like good health and gender equity and, you know, sustainable cities. Uh, Lots of information online about them. And then below them are our targets. So there's 17 big goals and there's 169 uh, targets. And I I think they're a really interesting set of goals for each country in the world to think about if we could live in this kind of a world, what would that world look like, right? So they're specific and we actually use them as a data taxonomy to organize our resources. So, you know, if I want to know who's on the team for, you know, SDG target 2.1, ending hunger, I can go search in the database and find companies and nonprofits and what out there. But I think those goals are, are really important. And now what we need to do is to think about ways to make them come true. And not everybody can do everything, right? But every company is on a team, every nonprofit's on a team, every government's on a team. And we're trying to reorient people's thinking to what team's an eye on and how can I contribute to these larger pieces to make the kind of world that we want to see happen? So I'd encourage your listeners to look at the SDGs of the goals and to think about how their company or nonprofit or government can be useful and serve them. I think they've been a, a really good kind of guiding light in terms of what the world could look like.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. And I will include links to that, of course, with show notes, in addition to a couple of IPCC reports, which are the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, because these two things are, are pretty connected. And I just encourage people to continue on this journey to educate yourselves. Now, Jens, we've spoken for about an hour, and I have to say this has been my pleasure. I could probably keep doing this for another hour or two. <laughs> <laughs> you have to get on your Pacific Coast uh, trail hike uh, this holiday weekend. Pacific We're, Crest. going on the Pacific Crest. crest the that's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, if there's a question that I haven't asked that you wish I had, what might it be? And if you could ask and answer that.
0: Uh, I guess I would just come back to encouraging your listeners to think about seeing their own organizations differently and to ask those three questions. You know, how am I interacting with other private sectors, importantly, social sector, and importantly, government? And to start to see solutions with this sort of whole society approach, which is the, you know, the big lens, I think it's super practical, like really get into it and see, oh, I can do this, this, and the other thing, and then share it and talk about it. So that would be what I what I'd finish up with. I don't have a. You asked a lot of great questions, so I don't think I have one that just pops to mind <laughs> that you didn't ask.
1: Well, we'll have to come back at some point and talk about food insecurity and perhaps. Oh, I'd love to. deeper into that subject in particular. I um, actually think
0: our food work, which is also on the website under the community food utility stuff, is some of the most transformative stuff that we've ever put together. And if it it'll take ten or fifteen years and it'll get to get tested, but boy, if there's anything. If it's anywhere close to being real, it's a game changer for climate, wow. for health, education, a bunch of other things.
1: I love that. And perhaps that should be on the other show I host, Nutrition Without Compromise, because the whole ethos of that is nutrition without compromising your ethics or the health of our planet. So All right. I
0: look forward to, to to talk number two. Thanks, <laughs> Karina. Have a great weekend.
1: Yeah, you as well. Thank you, Jens, for your hard work and for joining us today. This has been my absolute pleasure. Thank you. I'll be sure to include links to newimpact.care and show notes, as well as the many other items that we discussed today, including those SDGs, the IPCC, and perhaps even a summary of the acronyms that we shared today so that you can educate yourself and stay informed. Now, I encourage you to visit caremorebebetter.com. That's the site for this podcast, and we do include their complete transcripts. The video version of this podcast, the audio, and other resources as well. As we close today's show, I really want to invite you to tap into your curiosity, seek out and support businesses, inform yourself using tools like newimpact.care. They are putting their money where their mouth is, walk in the walk, and building a better, more sustainable future for all of us. You too can vote with your dollars and do more good. You too can share this episode with people in your community that you think need it. They could learn from it. You could even grab your bestie's phone and download this episode right onto it for them so they are that much more likely to give it a listen when they have time. This is important stuff, especially for entrepreneurs, change makers, and business builders around the globe. If you have questions for me or for Jens, I hope you'll send me a note at hello at caremorebebetter.com Or better yet, leave me a voicemail by clicking that microphone icon in the bottom right-hand corner and recording a message. Who knows? Perhaps I'll even play it on a future episode. Thank you, listeners, now and always, for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. We can care more, and we can be better. We can even regenerate Earth. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good.